0: The message this morning is called very simply: Our amens are not enough. It's not enough to amen the idea of unity and solidarity, and it's not enough to idea. I mean, to amen the idea of racism is wrong or sinful. We've been saying amen for decades. It's not enough. Our amens have to turn into action. We have to say, I must steward some of this in the in the uh, strategy for healing. And bringing about oneness. We're talking about revival. Revival like we've never seen. But before revival can find the church in the south, we must topple the stronghold of racism. It is a non-negotiable. Jesus will not entrust his very best to a segregated or a church that opposes itself. We must come against this stronghold. So Jesus prays some of this. In John 17... The Lord takes a macro view of the church in the ages to come, and he's talking to the Father. We're in a prayer between God the Son and God the Father. John 17, 10, Jesus says to the Father, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. One even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's referring to Judas there. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given to me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. I'm actually not going to preach John 17 this morning, but there is no greater passage that reveals the heart of God the Son concerning the church and his prioritizing that as we are theologically and positionally one with each other, If you are born again, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, if you believe that his death has paid for all of your sin, past, present, and future, If you believe that he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling as King of kings and Lord of lords, and you have in a moment of faith bowed yourself to him and say, Lord, I receive you as Lord over my life, that means you are one with every single other person in any generation, any nationality, any race, any language, anywhere on the globe, at any point in the history of the church. You are absolutely one with them. That is theology. And the reality is this. Jesus says, now live out that theology. Cool. As it is, it's, we're not voting on whether or not we're one. <laughs> Jesus declared it, and then he said to the Father, now, Father, I'm praying for them that they will be that. It's interesting. He's asking the Father, Father, make them to be what they are. Make them to be what they are. So anything other than unity in the body of Christ is a counterfeit to some degree. And so this morning, although I am, if you're interested, I plan to preach this on Wednesday night, this coming Wednesday. But for today, I want to talk to you about why our amens are not enough. doesn't mean you can't say amen this morning. Some of you are like bionic ameners, and I appreciate that. That doesn't bother me a bit, but what I'm saying is if, if that's all any of us do, then we've missed the point. So let's just start with this issue of, of racial reconciliation. Raise your hand if you've heard the term in the church, racial reconciliation. I'm just curious. Okay, that's about half of us in here, and it is a frequently used term, um, but it's also a term that not everybody's comfortable with. Let me tell you what it means. The word reconciliation is very simple. It just means the restoration of friendly or healthy relations. That's all it means. Reconciliation is the restoration of friendly or healthy relations. Now, I've met a lot of brothers in in Christ that are black, and they say, Jeff, I don't like that word because blacks and whites have never been in healthy or friendly relations. It's not a restoration. We need to create that, and I get that. And if I was gonna split a hair this morning, I would probably choose a different word. But what I'm talking about is the understanding and the belief that is the intention of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit to bring all all Christians of every age, every generation, all colors, all nationalities, cross denominational lines, which God never ordained should be, but we created them. Across all of that, God says, I'm going to bring you back into oneness before my son comes. Now, some of you don't believe that. I believe it. I believe that Jesus is going to display a oneness in the body of Christ that none of us in our lifetimes have ever seen before. I actually believe that it's going to rock like Acts chapter 2 and uh, the whole book of Acts rocked. I believe it's going to look like that. But it's not going to happen because God does it all. See, we're real bad about saying, God, do it. That sounds great. God says, I am going to do it, but you're going to cooperate. I'm going to do it through you, and you, and you. And somebody said, amen. I said, well, our amens aren't enough. There's more to it than that. But what's the launch pad for all of this? Because it all sounds like a great idea. But what's the launch pad for racial reconciliation? Well, let me give it to you. Jesus gave it to us. Matthew chapter 22. These verses will be up on the screen behind me. Verses 36 through 39. Here's the launch pad. Somebody asked Jesus, what's the great commandment in the Hebrew law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And then he said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're all familiar with that. Two great commands. Love God with everything that you are. And just underneath that, so attached to that, is this high call for us to love neighbors. You say, well, who's my neighbor? Well, somebody asked that. And the teaching of Scripture is very simple. Your neighbor is anybody and everybody. It's whoever else you're walking under the sun on planet Earth with. And some we get to connect with regularly. Some we get to connect with uh, infrequently. But ultimately, Jesus is calling us to so love the Father that we're not asking, well, who do we have to love? But we're now transitioned into, who do I get to love? Who can I, to whom can I show this great love? Now listen, when it comes to racial differences, and I'm at at the risk of excluding Asians or Hispanics today, I'm going to go where I believe the problem is most visible and most entrenched, and that is between blacks and whites. And I'm just going to tell you, I talked to my good friend Jeremy White, and I said, Jeremy, pray for me on Sunday morning because I don't know where all the politically correct landmines are, and I'm bound to step on one. And Jeremy said this. Jeremy, if you don't know him, brother, an African-American brother, loves me to death. I love him. And we meet together, not enough, but we meet together often enough to where Jeremy and I know each other's heart. And he said, Jeff, I think the church knows your heart, so don't get tripped up on all of the semantics. Just tell us what God's saying. And so here, here's what I want to share from this call to love and in this issue of hostility in our nation where it will go down in history. In a year, we'll be still talking about August uh, uh, 11th and 12th in Charlottesville, Virginia, where it came in our face again and white nationalists, which is a condemnable movement, condemned, born of demonic entities, That white people would come together and they would say that we want to own a piece. Literally, it's attached to the white secession movement, where there is an actual movement among a small, hand, a small handful of, in my opinion, idiots that want to claim the South for whites. And they even had the audacity, as I read some of their heresy written online, to say that it's part of our Christian heritage. And they came into Charlottesville, outsiders, came to defend a Confederate memorial, a statue, an idol. And their desire to move in, and of course, the mantra was, we come peacefully. Hey, they may be evil, but they're not that stupid. They knew that that kind of presence was going to invite another kind of presence. And so at the end of the day, we have three dead people. A 32-year-old woman crushed by the car of a 20-year-old Caucasian driver who decided he would plow his vehicle into those that had the daring uh, audacity to protest this movement, this white nationalist movement. And so he destroys a life with a car. And then you have two police officers and a helicopter that have been assigned to oversee the whole thing from an aerial view, and that helicopter goes down. You have three deaths all because of this. I'm I'm, I'm not going to Sugarcoated, All because of racism. All because of racism. And yet the church is getting so used to this, and we see it played out. And we all have our our pet views of who's going to feed us our news? What angle am I going to get the news in? Am I going to go CNN, MSNBC? Am I going to go Breitbart? Am I going to go Fox? Am I going to go Drudge Report? And and you go to the same sources every day, and it starts feeding your worldview. And all of a sudden, you're not even trying to. All of a sudden, you're tilting this way, or you're tilting this way. And then in the church, there are people that tilt both ways, and when that happens, they're tilting away from each other. When Jesus said, I want you intertwined like a braid, not leaning like polar opposites. So Jesus is saying this. Here's the greatest relational commandment. I want you to love each other just like you would naturally love yourself. And friends, nobody had to teach us how to love ourselves. We take care of ourselves, we pamper ourselves, we fight for ourselves, we protect ourselves. In so many ways, it is so easy to live for yourself. That's why Jesus said part of the gospel is I got I to empower you to deny yourself. I mean, it takes the Holy Spirit just to deny yourself because we're so naturally inclined to live for ourselves. And what happens when it comes to this issue of race, there's a whole lot of swirling generational confusion. Do you understand that in, um, I believe, two years, it'll be 400 years since the first African slave was brought to North America? 400 years. That is the origin of the problem. And origin always influences outcome. And when the origin is to take by force an African from his homeland and to bring him across the sea in the bottom of a ship in horrendous conditions... And those that lived were established not in freedom, but as slaves to work the land of white people. And that went on for hundreds of years. And then in 1865, when a bold and brave president declared that this would no longer be, it took another hundred years to the civil rights march and movement before white people started thinking, this is not a problem that is going away. And yet here we are some 50 years after that, And we've got this clash going on. And the church, by and large, especially the white church, if I'm being honest, has been very quiet. And I believe I can say with all authority that God is no longer willing to offer blessing upon a church that has muted itself about this issue that is destroying people. It's the launch pad. The launch pad for this is not... Rodney King made that famous statement, can't we all just get along? It's a very pragmatic and practical statement, probably a valid question, but the answer to Mr. King is no. No, if we could, we would have. We need something greater than ourselves. And Jesus says, that greater is me, and I will make that happen (laughs) if you will love one another. What's the logic behind it? So, let's move from the launch pad of love. And what, what is the logic? Let's just think. Let's be thinking Christians this morning. Here's the logic behind racial reconciliation. James gives it to us in chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, he's talking to men and women in the church, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, and here's the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, If you fulfill that, you're doing well, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and convinced by the law as transgressors. Now, this just seems a little silly, but just in case the the verdict's out, still out with somebody, showing prejudice, showing partiality, racism at its core is simply to judge an individual based on their affiliation with a larger group. And in, in essence, prejudice is, is just a compound word. It's just, pre means ahead of time, and, and, and ju- Judas is a judicial term. It means to judge before you have all the facts. You're prejudging. And just to be clear, it's sin. Prejudice and racism is sin. I don't care how much we love the people that generationally imparted racism down the line in our family. And by the way, let me just say this, because I I can sense that some of the white people are saying, hey, man, you're just talking to us. Listen, no no one race has a corner on the market of prejudice. Racism is in black, white, Latino, and Hispanic. But I'm a white guy talking primarily to white people today And I want to make it known that these things need to be said because if we are the, the, our ancestors were the origin of the problem, that's not an if, that's a fact, it's a historical fact. We began that. You say, Jeff, it wasn't me. I know, but it was people that look like you. (laughs) And they did it to people that look like African-Americans today. And that's not going away. And as much as we want to, oh, just let's not talk about it. Not talking about it is what has led us to this point. Prejudice, racism, judging people based on their ethnicity is one of the sins that Jesus Christ died for. And there's not a one of us in here that would just kind of bat an eye at somebody living with perpetual sin of immorality in their life. We we wouldn't say, well, that's okay. Their their parents taught them that. Uh, If if somebody was constantly covetous or constantly uh, uh, critical or or constantly drunk or, you know, one of the big sins that in churches we like to elevate and say, "We, we can't do that. And yet we're silent on sins of the heart, like prejudice and racism. We'd never give anybody a free pass if they lived day in and day out stumbling around drunk. We would say, man, that person needs to be redeemed. That person needs to be delivered. That person needs to be saved. That person needs to be set free. And yet we will, God help me. We have systemically given a free pass on this issue of racism. We've ignored it. And what we've done is we've defaulted to pragmatics. We said, well, that's why there's black churches. That's why there's Latino churches. That's why they're Korean churches and Filipino churches and, and Nigerian churches. And I, I just want us to just slow down a minute and, and ask this question. It's just logical. Does Jesus see his bride like that? That's a sch- schizophrenic bride? That's a divide I'm not being funny, that's a divided bride. That's a fragmented bride. That's a broken bride. Where James just comes in and says, "Brothers and sisters, If you judge others and are prejudiced against them, you are sinning and you're guilty of the whole law. So, anybody uncomfortable yet? There's still time. Here we go. Listen, it's uncomfortable, and that's why we don't talk about it. I'm trying not to scream, but I'm passionate about this. I scream about everything else when I preach, so I'm probably going to scream about this too, but I'm, I'm just passionate. Why? Because of this next part. Because this, this appeal that I'm making today, it, it's not a political appeal. By the way, just in case you wondered, I am not a Republican. All the Democrats say, yeah, I'm not a Democrat. I'm a registered independent who tilts libertarian if you want to pigeonhole me. But the reason is, is because the answer is not in the Democrats, the answer is not in the Republicans. The answer is not in Washington, D.C. When was the last time they fixed something? Uh, listen. And we're talking about something as important as this. No, no governmental agency can fix a heart problem, and this is a heart problem. And so look at the longing within racial reconciliation i love what paul says to the church at philippi and i'll apply it to this issue today paul writes and he says if there's any encouragement in christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit he's saying if anybody's saved if there's any affection and sympathy paul says complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love Being in full accord with one another, having one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You can work on that the rest of your life, by the way. (laughs) Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Let me just tell you, this passage drives me in this issue. Because it's so easy for us to be polite on Sundays and remain segregated the other six days of the week. And we can say, oh, we're a culturally diverse church. We're 30% African-American. We're, we're 5% Latino. We're 2% Asian. And, and then there's a bunch of white people. We're diverse. We can put it on our, our internet, our website. We can tell people in the community. We can say, oh, look how diverse we are. And yet if there's not a weaving, a blending, a braiding of our lives together, then all of that is a sham. It's all show. Schlack, veneer. It's a marketing ploy if we're not living it out together. In 1983, I attended a baseball camp at University of Georgia. I was 13, maybe been only 12, about to turn 13. And I was so excited. Um, my parents dropped me off at UGA. And I walked into the room, and for the first time in my life, I was the minority. There was two white guys there. I was one of them. And the other white guy was on an all-black team, and he, was, he he already had relational buy-in with all of them. And I knew that day that I was different, and it was the first time in my life I had ever felt it. And so as that week went on, I experienced for the first time in my life, in the most intense time before that or, or since then, of of Racial persecution. I was mugged that week. I was beaten in a humiliating way. And then I was mocked. And they gave me a a name that I'm not going to repeat here in the pulpit. And they called me that every day, all day, for seven days. And I remember I kept a stoic face. I could do nothing. I was powerless. I wasn't going to win. And I remember when my dad and mom came and picked me up at the end of the week. I got in the back seat and my dad said, how was this week? And I burst into tears. I literally laid down in the back of that seat and wept for about 30 minutes on the ride home from Athens. And I finally told my parents what had happened. My father, thank God for him, had raised me and my mother never, ever to allow prejudice in my life. But I'm going to tell you something evil got born in my heart that week. And I struggled with prejudice from age 13 to age 24. I never fully gave myself to it, but I had some secret thoughts about black people that didn't leave me until I was 24 years old. Why? Because of something that happened to me that discolored everything else I saw in my relationship with African-Americans. Thankfully, the blood of Jesus not only set me free from drugs and alcohol and my own self, but set me free from the sin of any racism that was in my heart. My point being is this. It was at that moment of my salvation, just some short time afterward, I finally began to understand from my little microcosmic experience at 13 years old how many, if not most, African Americans feel every day. My dialogue, and by the way, if, if you're white and you're forming your views on race relations by talking to a bunch of other white people, uh, your approach is flawed. Two years ago, I realized that I was ignorant of most of what uh, caused blacks in America angst, so I began to openly dialogue with friends that were black. And this is the, the, the two things that I hear. And I, I want my white brothers and sisters to hear me on this. And I don't want you to just say, hmm, that's too bad. I want you to feel it. I've heard from multiple black men, primarily black men, and they say, Jeff, one of two extremes happens when I'm in public and I am one of the only black people. I either feel like the white people are staring me down or they don't see me at all. And I thought to myself, how demeaning and how devaluing and to live in that and have to come to a place in our culture on a certain level where in order to function and get by, you just have to learn to live with some of that. That's that's what I hear from my black brothers and sisters. And I'm thinking the sense of devaluing, the attached systemic shame, the reality that this is generational, I want you to think with me on this. God gave me this this morning in the prayer room. My great-grandfather's great-great-grandfather would have been among the generation that said, we choose this oppression of Africans. We enslave them. My great-grandfather's generation would have said, we defend our great-great-grandfather's decision to enslave. We defend these principles. We view ourselves, because we are white, as superior." And we defend the position of our superiority. My grandfather and father's generation, though it began to slightly lessen, they might have said this, well, we've learned to live with this. My generation, I'm 47 years old, my generation and younger has started to say, we hate this. We hate racism. My children's generation, if my prayers get answered, will be the generation that says, we ended it. We ended it. I speak over the young people, many of whom are sitting right here. Part of your mission in the kingdom is to work diligently to bring to an end the racial division that your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and on down the line. We handed you a problem. I'm asking you in the name of Jesus to answer the call to put it to an end, to defeat it to fight it wherever you see it. I will help you as long as God leaves me breathing. I got 30 years, and I plan to... Well, I don't want to just say 30, but if I get 30 years... hope that wasn't prophetic, otherwise... <laughs> If I get 30 more years, I want to spend a bulk of those years fighting this issue. It may not be ended in my lifetime. It's certainly not going to be dealt with just by a sermon on a Sunday. But I'm going to tell you something. It's got to be put to end. We'll never experience breakthrough revival until we slay the giant of racism. And my friends, God's not going to do it for us. We will have to pick up the sword and swing. Let me get down to the end of it. How are we going to win? What's it going to take? The longevity of racial reconciliation. Because a sermon can't fix it. I can't preach it out of anybody's heart. Listen, there's only a few hundred people in this room. Maybe another couple of hundred that'll watch online or wherever we stream this. But you don't fix this issue by sermonizing. But I am talking to brothers and sisters. And all of our lives have been impacted to some degree by this. Nobody's immune from it. And even if it's not in your heart, it's all around you. That's why it's so important when Paul said to esteem others, more important than yourself. It means because Jesus is Lord of my life, because this is a problem that causes pain all over the place, I am going to take into consideration the things that are happening to others as if they were happening to me. It means we don't study it academically. It means we enter into it. So what is this longevity? What is the hope? I'm crying too, little brother. (laughs) It's going to require perpetual humility. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. I speak to my black brothers and sisters right now. Most of this has been to white people. You've got to hear Paul on this. You've got to receive it as the word of God. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's going to require humility across the board, but I would say that in the the very clear sense of the American fabric, American society, going back to pre-colonial times, the whole system, has been against blacks and before you raise your hand today to say we had a black president therefore that system is no longer in operation i I encourage you take a moment before you embarrass yourself the system did not become all of a sudden magically healed when Barack Obama spent eight years in the White House. If anything, I believe that racial relations post-President Obama, not necessarily because of him, but because of the reality that he would not allow the spotlight to move off of racism. And listen... You can fault him for that or you can bless him for that. But the reality is when he is a a living representation of the systemic problem in this nation and you can't click a channel where he's not, it's a reminder. And so it exacerbates it. Listen, sometimes the Bible is a very strange proverb. It says, the blueness of a wound cleanses all manner of evil. I forget the reference. It's in Proverbs. The blueness of a wound cleanses all manner of evil. I remember reading that years ago and thinking, what is that? Well, let me just say that in the medical sense of it, it, and put a big broad banner of it over it, it's simply this, that sometimes things get worse before they get better. It could could be referring to a scab being formed over something. And I want to tell you, The pain is fresh right now for generations of African Americans whose voice has been muted by a system that has been primarily dominated by Caucasian people in power and that mute button has been hit, and it's been hit, and it's been hit, and it's been hit. Decades after decade after decade after decade. And black people have no voice, and white people are scratching their head today saying, I wonder what they're upset about. Listen, you can do this, and and, and this illustration's not perfect, but I'm going to tell you, when anybody in relationships is not heard, their volume's going to go up. And what we're seeing today is a generation of African Americans in America, along with a lot of white people, by the way, that are saying, enough is enough. We're not being heard. We're being patronized. We're being patted on the head. We're being appeased. And we're not going to stand still anymore and be ignored. And I would say this. If we can find a proper sense together as the church to give a voice to these issues of race, then everybody needs to be heard. But we have to find a way to listen. And part of the way that comes for listening is we have to find a way to communicate. And right now, let me just tell you big picture what's happening in America. And this is, this is not necessarily the church. I'm talking culturally right now. It, it shouldn't be this way in the church. I hope it's not. But in case it is, listen. Whites are trying to hold their breath and hope it goes away. That's what's happening in the culture. I think that whites, in some sense, are trying to protect the system that has favored them for generation after generation after generation. And blacks aren't going to have it, and they're mad. And so what you see in Black Lives Matter, what you see in uh, the Black Panthers, what you see in the nation of Islam is the solidarity of Africans in America that are saying, the government will never help us, we have to help ourselves. And when that isn't yielding results, the energy level gets turned up. And what once could have been a reasonable discussion that would not have favored blacks, and they know that, becomes no longer a reasonable discussion because reason isn't working, and now it has to be an amplification of energy. And sometimes that energy is violent. And sometimes the rhetoric is extremely heated. And then all of a sudden, that can't be ignored. So whites have to come back with their own rhetoric. And that's why you see a white nationalist movement moving into Charlottesville, Virginia, to make an issue, to create a problem, to start a fight. No matter what they said. Ridiculous, peaceful protesting. Listen. When white people come together, I don't care if they got hoods on or not, when they start lighting torches, it sends a message. And the audacity to think, oh, well, I'm sure it's just a peaceful protest. No, my friends, we can say whatever we want about the anti-protesters that came against the protesters and say, well, no violence happened until that protesters against the protest started doing it. My friends, it, listen, we all know how to pick a fight, And they went up there to pick a fight and they got one, and now three people have been taken into eternity because of racism. These thoughts are um, intense, they're not going away. And I appreciate the fact that, and I've heard this from so many white people. I've, I've probably even said it myself at some point in a moment of exasperation. It's like, man, I never owned a slave. I never enslaved anybody. I'm I'm not prejudiced. I'm not racist. I didn't do this. Why do I have to pay for my ancestors' sins when it comes to things like reparations and things like that? Why why do I have to pay for that? And, And listen, that may have a point of validity somewhere, but that's actually not the real argument. The better question is, what have we done as a people to so enrage another group of people and how long are we going to continue to do it while expecting different results? I know, brother. I'm weeping with Luke over here. I think that's Luke. You feel me? You say, well, Jeff, what's the answer? Well, the answer is Jesus, but we've got to figure out how that answer gets played out. The answer is Jesus. Saying, <laughs> say, well, that's just too simplistic. You got a better answer? Where's, it, where's the better answer been? I, I'm going to tell you something. I, I'm not going to embarrass anybody. Um, but I guarantee you if I said right now, hey, stand up if you were profoundly racist before you got born again and God switched that, that off in your heart and switched love on in your heart, there'd be people from all races stand up. They would say, I was a racist before I was born again. And when Jesus saved me, my whole heart changed. See, when it happens in individuals, and when we can focus on it and say it's not an option, I, th- I think that's one of the dangers right now. I-, I think a lot of us think this is actually an option. That, well, we-, we, can, we can be saved and sing our songs to Jesus and still harbor prejudice in our heart, but we're not going to say anything. We won't use the N-word. We won't use slurs. we, we just kind of keep it in. That's just the way I was brought up. I got so sick of that excuse. I mean, well, that's just the way I was brought up. Well, you, Listen, they may have been great people otherwise, but in that one, they messed you up. That's right. You got brought up wrong. I mean, that's all there is to it. It doesn't mean they're terrible, horrible people. It means they were probably brought up with, by somebody with the same blind spot. And at some point, the light's got to shine. We've got to wake up, and we've got to stop bringing up generations of young people that hear their parents and grandparents slandering people of other races. Perpetual humility. My black brothers and sisters at the risk of offending you. You're going to have to at some point decide because this problem is probably not going away in a year, five years, maybe 10. You're going to have to choose a couple of things. You're going to have to choose whether your identity is more rooted in your blackness or your salvation. It's hard. That's a hard word. I get it especially coming from a white guy. I understand the dynamic, but I'm going to say it again. You're going to have to choose whether your identity is more rooted in your blackness or in your salvation. Because if it's more rooted in your blackness, you're going to reach a point where you can't obey the verses I just read, which says you have to forgive like Jesus forgave you. It's the same way with whites. We have to decide, are we more white or are we more born again? And you literally have to decide that. Because what happens is you live in a culture that's trying to assign you your identity. We live in a culture that's saying, okay, uh, I've got this one over here is black, got this one over here is Hispanic, got this one over here, she's Puerto Rican, she's, this one over here is Filipino, this one over here is Korean, We've got a white guy over here, and that's your identity. So wherever I go, I'm the white guy. I'm not even white, I'm peach. <laughs> so I'm the peach guy. And so wherever I go, that's my identity. So I have to respond to things as the Caucasian. I have to answer questions as the Caucasian. I have to align myself politically as a Caucasian. I have to have relationships with others as a Caucasian. Why? Because the world wants to say my identity is in my whiteness. There's only a problem with that. Colossians chapter 3 says, you are, who were dead are now alive in Christ. Your life is hid with Christ in God. That means your identity is in Jesus. And so you actually have to fight against the world expecting you to conform to your racial identity. And sometimes that's going to be people within your own race. The, the, the amount of pressure that is placed on some Africans in the church when they go to a predominantly white church like newbridge We're about 70% white, 65, 70% white. And, and they have, I, I've spoken with you. Some of your relatives have said, I can't believe you go down there with those two white pastors. And they, they take that from their own community. Why? Because they, 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 there's a pressure to be more black than you are Christian. Listen, I'm not being rude. I told you there are landmines here. I might have just stepped on one, but the Bible just said you have to forgive me too. Amen. My, my heart is pure on this. And so when we're, watching, when we're watching the aggression played out between Black Lives Matter and and, and against white police, and the default reaction of most white Christians is simply, well, that's ridiculous, they ought to do something different, blah, and they just go on this tirade, and very few white people stop to say, I I wonder why they're doing it. I'm not condoning it, but I am asking the question, have you ever stopped to wonder as a white person why they're doing it, or do you just want to give the white answer to this? See, my friends, what happens when we start dealing with this? (laughs) is we all have to actually start going deeper. We have to love deeper. We have to forgive harder. We have to work harder. We have to, um, we actually have to navigate some of these politically correct landmines. And when they go off and somebody steps on one, we actually have to work hard not to write that person off for not knowing where the boundaries are and they crossed them. You see, it's work. Now, If you don't want to work at your Christian life, then you're just saying, Jeff, hurry up. It is lunchtime, son. (laughs) But I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something about you. You're actually sick of the division in the church. You're actually sick of it. You may have not connected with that in a long time. You're actually sick of it. You're sick of a segregated church. You're sick of racial awkwardness. You're sick of feeling, you, you, you know, guilty as a white person when some white person or some white policeman shoots an unarmed black person. All of a sudden, you're feeling something. And you're tired of having to be lumped in when, when there's when there's white racists marching in Virginia or on the top of Stone Mountain burning crosses or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, you're like, man, I, I hope they don't put me in with those buffoons. And, and you're, you're, you're feeling that. And by the way, you're sick of that. You don't want to feel that way anymore. Same way with, with black brothers and sisters. When, when, when somebody's acting foolish and they're doing it publicly and they're doing it with, without the, the context of, 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 of a big-picture approach to, to solving the issue and they're angry and fed up and they're not going to take it anymore and they're raging... And that's not the way you would handle it as a black Christian. And you're tired of being lumped in with that kind of behavior. We're all sick of it. We're sick of the denominational divisions. I'm, I'm going to go big picture with this. We're sick of the fractures in the church. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, is, there's not a black Holy Spirit. There's not a white Holy Spirit. There's not a Latino Holy Spirit. There's not an Asian Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in all of us is grieved at racism, and that's why we are grieved at it. And the only way we're not sensing being grieved at it is because we've hardened our heart about it. So messages like this come in like heat, and they soften the clay of our heart so it can't be hardened. Let me give you these last things, and I'm going to quit. I promise you, I'm not even giving an invitation today. There's just too much to think about today. So I'm going to finish up in a minute. I'm going to send you home thinking about this. But I don't want you to just think about it. It's not going away. It's not going away. It's not going away. I'm not doing this because of what happened on the 11th and 12th of August, 2017 in Charlottesville. The message was being prayed over two weeks before Charlottesville was even in the news. This is the Father. This is the Lord. He's saying, this is what I'm saying to my church. Heidi Baker said in a conference at Voice of the Apostles three years ago in Nashville, I was in the audience. She said, The Father is coming after the Bible Belt. The Father is coming after the Bible Belt. And you know what he's going to have to do? He's going to have to break racism for revival to take over the Bible Belt. He's going to have to. They can't coexist. You want revival? You want healings? You want miracles? Me too. It's not going to happen in a racially divided, hostile environment. It's not going to happen. So, well, can't God overlook that? No, he can't overlook that. He does not wink at sin. So we can't beg him for revival and lift our hands in praise and worship in a moment of ecstatic glory and pray for hours in tongues and prophesy and, and, and seek to give words of knowledge and healings and all of that and then go home with vile racism in our heart. It's not going to happen. And so it's going to require precise trust in God. This is actually in the notes. I know I've wandered, but Romans 12. Listen to this. All of us, all of us, all of us. This is command. This is an imperative. Repay nobody evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Act honorably if possible. Here we go. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Let me just stop there. I'm going to say this to all my black brothers and sisters. I have no idea when the scales are going to be balanced. I have no idea. But I know that they will be balanced. Because God, God is a God of justice. So much of this is, is, is about justice. It is injustice that offends the heart of the father. And when that injustice is played out racially, systemically, generationally, the father does not give a free pass. And so when we're thinking about this and God's saying, don't act in wrath. You leave vengeance to me. I will repay it. That is a promise from the one who saved you. He has never broken a promise, and he will balance the scales. Having said that, I also want to add this. When we're talking about racial reconciliation, it involves at least four things I don't have time to go into. First of all is racial healing. And that is what arises only via the cross of Jesus, not cultural, not social programs, and not government. Racial healing comes when two people connect at the feet of Jesus and they recognize that they are brother and brother, brother and sister, sister and sister, sister and brother. Racial healing is the only place it'll happen. It'll only happen at the cross. It also involves a racial reboot. And that means that at some point, there's gotta be a foundational agreement in the church between blacks and whites of how we will act toward one another. And, and and you know what? It's never too late to start doing the right thing. And I'm a firm believer and a clear proponent. Do the right thing whether you feel it in the moment or not. Just start doing what is right. Start honoring one another. Start loving one another. Start deferring to one another. Start listening to one another. Start seeking out one another. Stop being afraid of each other. Satan won a large part of this battle when he started getting blacks and whites to desperately fear each other. And that fear keeps us at a distance. And even when the fear is broken through, there's still an awkwardness that is there. Instead of just (laughs) recognizing the beauty in our diversity, listen. I'm gonna be the first to tell you. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I don't understand everything about the black world. How can I? I'm the peach guy. But I love my black brothers and sisters enough to say, will you help me understand where you're coming from? Will you help me understand a little bit how to get it? Can you help me in my ignorance and my weakness? And just trust me for a minute. Believe me when I say I really do love you, and I'm sorry I don't get it, and I'm sorry for what people that look like me have done to people that look like you, and I really don't ever want that to happen again. But I, I just want to tell you, I met Jesus at the cross, and you met Jesus at the cross, and if you're there and I'm there, we're meeting each other, and I, I just want to love you, and I want to be loved by you. And, if, and friends, listen, I'm sorry if that's a little too syrupy for you, but it's actually what you want. It's actually what we all want. It's a racial reboot, and it's got to happen. And that moves into racial unity. That's, where, that's a mobilized oneness and our shared redemption, I think that's what's going to be my, my, my daughter and any grandkids I have in their generation. I think you'll see a mobilized racial reboot. It means like Solomon, or David gathered everything for Solomon to build the temple. I feel like my generation is gathering everything and setting up my children's generation to walk in a racial oneness that no generation in America has ever seen. And then ultimately, and this is the hardest part, racial justice. White people hear me on this. I'm just going to stop, man. I'm going to give you a quote from Dr. King, and then I'm going to be done. One of the most harmful things in the white community that is constantly communicated is this flippant response to the pain of African Americans that says, y'all just need to move on. You know, it's it's been 100 plus years since slavery was a reality. Y'all just need to move on. And in essence, y'all just need to get over it. And that is communicated both overtly and subtly from the white community on a level that is like pounding a bruise in the black community. There has to be some way of recognizing historical wrongs that have been done to the black community. There has to be. I don't know what it is. At the very least, I believe there needs to be from somebody with a prominent voice in the land who is Caucasian, to legitimately, earnestly, with heartfelt sincerity, communicate to the black community that we are appalled and deeply saddened by what our forefathers did to your forefathers.
1: And we feel that. And if we could undo it, we would undo it. And we are so, so sorry that it is still going on today. And I'm sorry for what you've endured. I'm sorry for the shame that you felt. I'm sorry sorry for Selma and Mobile. I'm sorry for Tennessee. I'm sorry for Washington, D.C. I'm sorry for the fire hoses and the German shepherds. I'm sorry for the white hoods and the burning crosses. I'm sorry for the lynchings in our own city of Lawrenceville in 1900s. I'm sorry for these things that we have done as a race of people against your race. I am so, so sorry. Bless you, my brother. Bless you, my brother. Stay up here, wouldn't you? Just stay up for a moment.
0: It's got to stop.
1: This is my brother, Obed.
0: We love each other because of Jesus. We probably wouldn't have known each other except for Jesus. What began 400 years ago in North America has to come to an end. As much as it depends on me, it's going to end. As much as it depends on me. I give you this quote from Dr. King. We're going to pray and we're going to go. Dr. King said, I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. Let me have your hand, my man. No, the other one. Let me have the other one. Lift your hands up. Lord Jesus, ultimately, we depend on you for healing and help. Lord, I don't want this to be a sentimental moment. I don't want it to be a viral moment that draws attention to nothingness. Holy Spirit, with a syringe of love, inject lasting substance in this. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us all. And change our hearts one by one. Bring an eradication of racism through a sweeping movement of the Holy Ghost. I believe with Dr. King that unconditional love will have the last word. We want to hear it in our lifetime. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.